Oh, do you remember that day? See, some of you are laughing because it sounded familiar to you, didn't it? I mean, we do, right? If, if you're married, we, we had this tendency to come to an altar, wherever that is, if it's in a church, if it's just in, a, in you know, another location or in front of just the, just of the peace, whatever. But we're standing there in that moment and we're saying, you know, these things that we have to repeat or whatever. But in our mind, we're thinking all kinds of things. And typically, it's all the desires maybe that we have, maybe the expectations that we have for what's going to take place, what the marriage is going to be like, what this person is going to be like. And we bring all of those into the relationship with us. And we're looking and going, this is going to, all of my dreams are going to come true right now with this person. <laughs> and then you're a few years later and you're like, what happened? What happened? I remember that day and all these things. And, and what, what, yeah, what happened, right? And you reach this place where you're like, this person was going to do all and meet all of these needs. And now I'm just wondering, is this the right person? I, I, because it just seems to go south on you. A lot of times our relationship, especially, especially marriage, it kind of starts off like this candlelight dinner for two, right? I mean, it's so romantic, right? And you're just so into each other. You can't even focus on feeding yourself. You're like, you know, I'm just totally enamored with the person sitting across from me. You know, the waiter's like, you know, are you guys thirsty? Can I get you? Oh, I'm thirsty. You know, you're just thinking all about this person, right? You can't even order. Can't get anything right. And you're just, man, it just starts off like this. and Everything's wonderful. And, and, and over time... It just seems like chairs begin to move. And, and, and little by little, they begin to angle a little more outward and not so much inward. You begin looking at things a different way. And you're not so much enamored as much as irritated with that person. And with the relationship. So what do you do with that? What we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about relational conflict. And, and if, you've, if, you've, if today's the first day to, to be here with us and you're uh, wondering about the other things that we've talked about in the Love Boat series, you can catch up with those anytime. I encourage you. We have video and audio of those. You can go to our website and catch the video of the messages. Uh, you can go to uh, audio, any podcast that you listen to, any uh, podcast app, and you can find our logo on there and listen to any of those messages anytime. And I encourage you to go back and catch up on some of the things that we've talked about. But as we wrap up today, I want to talk about this whole issue of uh, conflict in relationships. Now, the truth is, some of you are sitting here today, and in your marriage, you're struggling. And it's real. And you're wondering if you're even going to make it. Now, you show up here at church and you have a smile on your face and everything's wonderful. I'm blessed. You know, everything is great. And because and, and in your mind, you're thinking the last thing I can do is, is let people know what's going on inside of me, especially church people. I don't want any of them to know what's going on inside of me. I can't be real with them. And so you just hide all those things and you're masking all of those things and you've got a smile and everything's wonderful in your life, but it's not. Because inside you're like, oh, 
you know. And you just had an argument on the way here. And so you're wondering, are we going to even make it? How do I deal with all the conflict? And the reason you don't want anyone to know is because there is a tendency in all of us to think that I'm the only one in this room dealing with this. Our marriage is the only one in here that's struggling. Look at all these happy people. They're not struggling. Nobody deals with what we're dealing with. I don't want anybody else to know. And the truth is, every relationship has conflict. Every relationship. Every marriage has conflict. Why? How do I know? Because you've got two people. Anytime two people are involved, you're going to have conflict somewhere along the way. The only people that get along all the time and never having arguments are dead people. All right? Okay, so, so because you're breathing, you're going to have conflict. At some point, everybody does. And so what do you do with that? How, how do you deal with it? Do you just ignore it? Do you just kind of cast it off to the side? Do you kind of, you know, look around at other people and wish you had something better? But how do you deal with the conflict in your life that is inevitably going to be a part of every relationship? We're going to talk about that today. In the book of Genesis, one of the verses that we read early on in the series, it's that first marriage that took place. And it's in Genesis chapter 2, and here's what it says. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. So he took a rib from the man, made woman. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So Adam is looking going, finally, someone I can relate to. He, he's looked at all these animals that have been coming along that God had created. He'd been naming all these animals, looking at them, not for me, not for me, not like me. Oh, no way, not for me. You know, looking at all these. And finally, he's going, oh, man. Oh, this, this one's for me. I mean, she's got thumbs and a lot more. I mean, she's for me. She looks a lot like me, but in a lot of ways doesn't look like me, which is a good thing. And so, I mean, he is so excited that he finally has someone that he can relate to on a different level. And he says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. It says the two were united into one. In other words, the two individuals became something that didn't exist before. And that's really what happened in your marriage as well. Two people became something, became one, created something that wasn't there before. And it says they were naked and felt no shame. It's more than just being physically naked. They were relationally, emotionally, spiritually naked and felt no shame. It is the definition of intimacy. I have nothing to hide. Into me, you see. I have nothing to hide here. I'm open. I'm vulnerable in every single way. I'm naked, and I feel no shame. What it begins to point out to us is something that we see in Scripture, but you know this in other places in life as well, and it's this. Intimacy happens from the inside out, not the outside in. Intimacy really has to begin on the inside. Now, that goes against what we learn a lot in culture because our culture really focuses on the outer. Our culture constantly is focused on the outer appearance, our outer chemistry. Do we connect outwardly? Do we have passionate sex? I mean, it's all outer, outer, outer. But the truth is, and we know this, that a, that a real sense of intimacy has to begin on the inside. Because when there's something that goes wrong on the inside, 
it affects things on the outside. When something's not right on the inside, man, I'm telling you, the chemistry and the sex, all the outer things, the physical things, they go away as well because it develops from the inside. And intimacy is the same way. If we want to have an intimate relationship, then there are things on the inside that we've got to pay attention to. There are things on the inside that begin to eat away at us. And if they go unchecked, they will develop into something huge on the outside. And the reality is every marriage that has some kind of issue, every marriage that comes in from marriage counseling or whatever, every marriage that struggles on the outside, it developed earlier on the inside with different attitudes and different things that started going on that went unchecked. And those inward attitudes and things began to manifest themselves outwardly in the way we acted toward each other. But it all begins on the inside. And so what I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about these, I'm going to give you three attitudes. They're negative attitudes that begin to develop on the inside. And if we're not careful, they will. They're, they're like sharks in the water, all right? And they will begin to eat away at our intimacy, and once those sharks smell a little bit of blood in the water, man, I'm telling you, they go crazy. And some of you are familiar with some of these. Now, it's just like any other shark. There's plenty of more sharks in the ocean. There's plenty more attitudes we can talk about. I'm going to give you three of the biggest ones, all right? And there are others as well, but I'm going to give you three of the biggest ones, okay? So sharks that tend to kill our relationship, attitudes, negative attitudes that tend to hurt us. Number one, selfishness. Selfishness. This may be the great white of all attitudes, okay, or relational attitudes. This is the apex predator of all relational, negative relational attitudes. This is the one that kills, maims, destroys, mangles, devours. Selfishness. And the reality is we all will struggle at some point with selfishness. And I can tell you that any relationship, any relationship that moves in the direction of separating, parting ways, at some point, at least one or both people became selfish. Selfishness was a part of it somewhere. Now, I know if I say that right now, your tendency probably will be to go, yeah, they're selfish. They're the ones. I know. Yeah. I know. Go ahead and talk about it. They're the ones that say, as likely it is, if you're feeling that instinctively, you might be the one that's doing that. But anyway, um, selfishness plays in there. Here's what James says. James is the brother of Jesus. He was the brother of Jesus, and he writes the book of James. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. He says, what is the cause of your conflicts and quarrels with each other? Doesn't the battle begin inside of you as you fight to have your own way and fulfill your own desires? You jealously want what others have, so you begin to see yourself as better than others. In other words, I'm looking around going, my needs are more important than your needs. My needs are more important than you. And you see yourself as better than others. He says, you scheme with envy and harm others to selfishly obtain what you crave. That's why you quarrel and fight. James says, I can just break this down for you. The reason you're having quarrels, the reason you're fighting... It's because of selfishness. You selfishly want what you want, and you don't really care what the other person wants. So you fight, you quarrel, you work, you connive, you manipulate, you do everything you can to try to be in a position of getting what you want. And you don't really care all that much about making sure the other person gets what they want. He says that's the cause of it. 
And the reality is that's the cause of any relational conflict. That's the cause of any national conflict for the most part. World conflict. They, they, they tend to start somewhere with somebody saying, my needs are more important than yours. My desires, what I want out of life, is so much more important than what you need or what you desire out of life. And, and the reality is I think all of us know that on some level. And we all know on some level that we have selfish things. I mean, we, we all have needs. We all have desires. And so we know on some level we all struggle in that area. The question is, why can't we stop? <laughs> I mean, if I, if I can look at a relationship and go, you know what, the, the problem is selfishness. And really, I'm, I'm being selfish. Then why don't I stop? Why can't I stop? Let me give you two reasons why we struggle so much with selfishness. Number one, it's who we are. It's who we are. I mean, we come into this world selfish. You say, I don't know about that, little babies. I don't know about that. Well, yes, you do. Listen, my kids, I never had to teach them how to be selfish. I never had to teach them to want their own way. I had to teach them to share. Had to teach them, you know, they're, they're, you know first words, mama, dad, dad, mine, right? And I'm not even sure they were in that, that order. I mean, that, it just is instinctive. It's something that they all come to the world with. You did too. And we struggle with this. It's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's part of mine. It's part of yours. Listen, I think about me. I think about how I feel. I think about the things that I need much more than I think about you and how you feel. It's not that I don't ever think about you, but I think about me a whole lot more than I think about you. And you think about you a whole lot more than you think about me. It's just who we are. It's part of us, okay? But the second reason I think we struggle is because it's what we're taught. It's what we're taught. I mean, everything in culture, everything in our society points toward us getting our own needs met, our own desires met. Look at all the advertising. Advertising, yes, they're selling a product, but they're selling happiness. They're selling success. They're selling peace of mind. They're selling security. That's why all the people in the Mercedes commercials are smiling. Oh, I mean, maybe the car is great. I don't know. But the, the reality is if you get a Mercedes, you'll smile too. Everybody's happy. That's why you get those, you know, those neighborhood, when they, they begin to develop a new neighborhood and you get the flyers in the mail, you know, come check out this new neighborhood. They're going to have, you know, some picture on there of some couple sitting like a picnic blanket, some lush green grass overlooking a beautiful lake. And the kids are off on the side frolicking and skipping around and, and essentially telling you, and you too can be this happy. You too can have this same peace of mind for $750,000, you know, whatever. Buy a house over here, you know, build a house over here. And you too, you know, well, they're, they're, they're selling property or a home, whatever, sure. But what they're selling is happiness, security, peace of mind, success, status. It's what we're taught. It's part of who we are. But we're taught over and over as we grow up. You have needs. Obey your thirst. Obey your needs. Get what you want out of life. If you don't take care of number one, well, who else is going to take care of you? So take care of your needs first. So what's the remedy to all that? I mean, how do we, how do we combat selfishness in our life? What's the remedy? Well, the remedy is honor. How do you combat selfishness? You begin to honor the people in your life. You honor them. You put them above you. 
You place them in a position above you. That's to honor them. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in the, in the book of uh, uh, Romans, chapter 12, verse 10. He says this, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted in love and honor one another above yourself. Put that other person above you. In other words, think a little bit less of you. Think a little bit more of that person. Quit putting yourself at the center of the universe and everybody rotates around you. Everybody's there to meet your needs. And put someone else ahead of you. Put the needs of other people ahead of your needs. Not that you deny your needs, but that you say this person's needs are going to be more important. You understand that honor changes the relational dynamic in every relationship of your life. Every relationship of your life. Your spouse in your marriage, Honor changes the relational dynamic with your children, with your neighbors, co-workers, with your boss, with your employees. The relational dynamic changes when honor is involved. You understand that the rules and the laws that we have in our society are because there's a lack of honor. Because the truth is this, when honor is customary, fewer needs or uh, fewer rules are necessary. When honor is the customary thing, fewer laws, fewer rules are necessary. Do not lie. Well, if I honor you, I'm not going to lie. Do not steal. Well, honor keeps me from stealing from you because I honor you. Do not murder. Well, I think that goes without saying. Do not gossip or spread false rumors about people. Well, if I honor you, I won't do that. Do you see that honor begins to change the relational dynamic? When honor is there, I don't have to have as many rules to govern my behavior. You know, one of the things that we wanted our kids to understand growing up is to honor each other, to honor your parents. And not just because, you know, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, you know, so you're going to obey the rules. But it's a more of a, of a thing where I, if they honor the people in their life, we don't have to have as many rules. In fact, I, I, we probably only had a handful of rules. And it's just because honor supersedes that. And the same is true in your marriage. When you honor the other person in your marriage, man, it just changes the relational dynamic. And the writer of Hebrews said this. In Hebrews 13, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. That you should honor the people in your life, to honor the spouse that you have. That you look at them and, and you say, I'm going to honor you by loving you the way that you need to be loved, by meeting the needs that you have in your life. I'm going to place those above mine. And if two people are constantly placing the other person's needs above their own and they're constantly honoring each other, do you see how the relationship changes? You say, well, I'll honor them, but they honor me. Really? Well, somebody's got to make the first move. Honor. Meeting the needs. It, it begs the question, do you know the needs of your spouse? Do you know what their needs are and how to meet them? Do you know how to love your spouse in a way that they receive love? You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, tend, we tend to love people in the way that we receive love. Like, like things that I receive, things that speak to me in a way of love, words of affirmation. I mean, you tell me I'm great, I'll be your friend forever. You know, I mean, just words, affirming words, man, that's a love language for me. Gifts, buy me something, 
we're good. The more expensive, the better. You know, I mean, that's just the way it speaks love to me. I'm not telling you to go out and buy me something, okay? If you want to, that's fine. But I'm not telling you to. But, but, but it's the way I receive love. Now, here's the thing. Because I receive love that way, I tried to love my wife Trina that way for years. So, for instance, I would go out on you know, birthdays, special occasions, Christmas, whatever, and I would shop for hours. I was on a mission, man. I was trying to get the perfect gift. I would shop, I would shop, I would get the gift. I would wrap it up. I would do all that. And my expectation is that I'm going to come to her on that day, that magical day, and I'm going to present to her, oh, you know, and she's going to go, oh, you're the greatest husband in the world. I would give her the gift. She'd open it. She said, yeah, it's nice. Hmm. Not quite what I was looking for. Uh, so you don't like it? No, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Okay, well, uh, you know, so w this went on for a while, and, and, and finally she's like, do you understand that I don't receive love that way? The way I receive love is quality time together. So you would be better served to take me with you shopping and us spend that time together. I would feel much more loved by you if you did that. So I'm like, Okay, so the next year I went out and shopped by myself again. I did that for year after year because, you know, men are just thick. It's, it's hard to penetrate that sometimes. Finally, I clued in. Oh, you mean like you want to go with me? Win-win, <laughs> right? So now I'm showing her love because we're spending time together and I never get the wrong gift, right? So it's a win-win. It's the way we receive love. Do you know how your spouse receives love? That's something that you need to find out. And love, a way of honoring is to love them in the way they receive love. We are different. Here's the truth. Men and women are just created differently. And that's by divine design. God creates us differently. So, so often we think of our spouse as defective because they're not like us, but they're just different than us, okay? And it's the way God has done that. We've talked about some of this before, but men and women, we, like I said, we love differently a lot of times, and we think and process things differently. Men and women definitely think and process things differently. By and large, okay, men... Their minds, the way they process things, but like, it's like a bunch of little boxes in their brain. And there's a box for everything that they go through in life, everything that's a part of their life. There's a box for you. There's a box for the kids. There's a box for the house. There's a box for their job. There's a box for the car. There's a box for money. There's a box for vacation. There's a box for retirement. I mean, there's a box for every little thing. There's a box for your mother that lives in the basement. There's a box for every little thing that's a part of their life. And here's the rule. If you're dealing with something, you go in and you take that box out. You deal with what's in that box. You close that box. You put that box away. And then you deal with the next box. You do not allow the boxes to touch. They never touch, okay? And you never have a bunch of boxes open at once. You just deal with a box at a time. That's the way we think by and large. Ladies, you're different. Your mind is much more like a ball of wire, and everything is connected to everything, right? So, you know, the car is connected to you, and you are connected to your job, and your job is connected to the money, and the money is what affords the house you live in, and the house is where you're raising the kids, and the house is also where your mom is still living in the basement. And so all of these things are connected, and it's just like, zzzz, and it's always buzzing, 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 and it never stops. It never stops. And so when you then approach your husband, and you're like, can I talk to you about something? Sure. And you start talking about, 
you know, I want to talk about the kids. You know, the kids' grades, they've been, you know, doing, you know, they're doing better, but they need to do some better than what they're doing because they're going to be going to college, you know, with your job. I don't know if you're going to get a raise anytime soon. We need to start putting in there for college fund because with your job, you know, I don't know if that person got fired that you were saying was going to get fired. But anyway, and that promotion might come. And then the car is beginning to break down. And because the other day with the house, I was, and the guy <laughs> is sitting there and then boxes are flying open, flying open. <laughs> And that's why when you look at him and he's just got this glazed look like, and you're like, and you know, you're asking him, so what do you think? He's like, yes, whatever you think about that. Like he, he's just, he's gone. I mean, it's done. He can't do that. And you see, the reason, the reason you remember things so well it's because all of those wires, all of those things that are connected to each other, they're all fueled by emotion. You feel all of those things, okay? And the reason you remember things like special occasions or all that, because you attach emotion and feeling to those things. And when you attach emotion or feeling to an event or to a thing, it, it becomes like seared in your brain, okay? Where the guy, the same things are happening. He sees the same events. Or things, he just doesn't care that much. And so it never sticks, right? But all of that wires and stuff, that ball of wire, it's all fueled by emotion, and a guy, see, a guy has a box that, that a lot of women don't know about, but, but every guy understands. It's a box where he can do absolutely nothing. It's called the nothing box. And that's why a guy can sit there and just not do anything. It's why he can go outside for endless hours in the garage or the yard, and you're going, why are you spending so much time out there? He's just out there, and he doesn't have to think about it. It's all mindless. He's just in this nothing box. Literally, the University of Pennsylvania did a, a, a survey, a study, to find out, can a man actually think about nothing and still keep breathing? <laughs> and they found that a man can almost be flatlined on his brain waves and what he's thinking about and still be able to breathe. And every man understands that. We understand when you go to him and you, you see him just kind of sitting there like he's deep in thought. And you say, what do you think about it? He says, nothing. He's meaning nothing. He's telling you the truth. We love the nothing box. If we get a chance, we will go to our nothing box every time. And that's why there's nothing that drives a woman crazier than a man who does nothing. It's what we love. We love her. But see... You have to understand that about each other. If you don't, you will see that person as defective. You know, Trina, one night, we're going to bed. Now, that's the worst time to bring up a conversation if you ever do that. You're like, I try to talk to, you know, my spouse all the time when we're going to bed. Don't. That's bad. But she's bringing up the night. I'm already in bed. I'm, I'm halfway there, right? I'm almost all. And she's like, Hey, I need to talk to you about something. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. What? And she starts going into all of these various things. That in her mind, are all connected. But in my mind, they're just like, oh, my gosh. Not only am I almost asleep, but now you've thrown open all these boxes. <laughs> and she gets finished. And here's another thing you got to understand, guys. She doesn't want you to fix that. She's telling you all these things because she needs to talk about that. But she's not looking at you going, can you fix it for me? Which is the mistake we make every time. Because we think we're trying to fix something for her. And she starts telling you all, then you jump in and say, well, here's the problem. Here's what you need to do. We cut to, it, you know, cut to the chase. Here's two things you need to do right now. And she's frustrated with you. 
Because all she wanted to do was talk about it. She didn't ask you to fix anything, but we feel like we're fix-it people, right? We feel like we need to fix it. So she tells me all these things, and she goes to sleep. She's sleeping like a baby over there because now she let it all go. And I'm sitting over there with all these boxes open, and I cannot go to sleep, save my life. <laughs> We're just different, okay? Can you honor your spouse and love them the way that they know and feel love? Can you honor them in, in the, the way that they're different than you and not expect them to be the same and not place all these expectations on them based on who you are and seeing them as defective. That's a way of honoring our spouse. You know, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's an unconditional kind of love. And then he said, wives. Now, you would think logically you would say, then wives, love your husbands. That's not what he says. He says, wives, respect your husbands. Does that mean that husbands don't need love? No, they need, we need love. Does it mean that wives don't need respect? No, you need respect. But Paul's speaking to the primary things that speak to a man and a woman. Wives, you primarily need to feel loved. Husbands primarily need to feel respect. And you might say, well, you know what? If my husband would act respectable, I would show him respect. Really. But you would expect him to love you unconditionally. As Paul says, what if he were to say, what if you would act loving, I would love you. And the same is true for us guys. We expect respect, but we don't want to love unconditionally. See, the way we honor is we put their needs above ours. We meet their needs. We love them in a way that they understand it. What does it mean to keep the marriage bed pure? It means that we don't look around, guys. There's no window shopping in marriage. I'm just looking, no harm in looking. Yeah, there's a lot of harm in looking. You focus your attention on her, meeting their needs, honoring that person. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. Your prayers will not be hindered. See, I think God is saying, this is how much I think of you honoring each other. Because if you don't honor each other, then don't expect to have a right relationship with me. See, we want to have this mindset that says, I can have a right relationship with God. It doesn't matter how I am with everybody else in my life. And God said, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. If you want to have a right relationship with me, then you must have a right relationship with the people in your life. Or at least do everything you can to have a right relationship with them. Because I see the two as connected. He says, honor people in your life honor your spouse that's the key to helping overcome selfishness the second thing we'll move on the second thing that kills is fear 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 is that thing that we absolutely hate we would rather have any other emotion than fear we detest fear and fear typically comes from our insecurities whatever insecurities we're feeling it creates a sense of fear inside of us and here's what we do because of that fear leads me to manipulate and control other people in my life out of fear out of insecurity i have to try to manipulate and control people i have to control the situation i have to make sure you're doing the right thing i have to make sure you don't live i have to make sure you do this whatever it is because i'm insecure about things and i fear what could happen and so i just have to control i have to manipulate and the problem is here's the, just the dynamic that's at play 
We want to be close to people, but we fear being too close to people. We, we want to have intimacy, but we fear that intimacy. It's because of the insecurities that we feel. And the truth is, insecurity limits intimacy. It always will. If you're insecure, if you have fear, it will limit the ability for you to have intimacy with that other person. You can't be intimate with somebody you don't trust and you're afraid of, that you feel insecure around. That's one of the reasons that I'd say that it's not a good idea to live together before marriage. I get it. It's the 21st century. I understand it's a different day than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. I understand all that dynamic. But to me, living together just heightens insecurity in a relationship. You have no idea if that person tomorrow can walk out the door and leave. Well, they say they're committed. Well, they're committed at least a little bit more when you're married. But they can walk out any time. And you know that instinctively. And it keeps a level of insecurity in the relationship. Because there's no commitment to each other. Insecurity will always limit our ability to have intimacy. So what is, the, what is it about fear? What fears really begin to take over in our relationship? Well, there's two things, I think, that really, that really hit us. Number one is exposure. We're afraid of exposure. We're afraid that if I let you in and let you know who I really am, that you're not going to like it. You know, it said that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. It's kind of interesting in our culture. It seems like people don't mind being physically naked. But they're scared to death of being emotionally or spiritually or relationally naked. You know, I can show you my outside, but I don't want you to see the inside. Exposure, because I don't know if you'll like what you see once you get to know who I really am. Maybe I have some things to hide. I don't want you to know. Exposure, we fear exposure. We also fear rejection. If I expose to you who I really am, then you're going to reject me. And rejection stings. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter who brought the rejection. You know, you look at two sixth graders and they're in love. And we all as adults want to sit back and go, you're right, you know. That's just puppy love. Well, you know what? Puppy love's real to the puppy, okay? And so that rejection that can happen even at sixth grade can sting. It can be hard to get over. It can be rejection from a teacher, from a coach. It can be rejection from a parent, from a spouse, from a church, from a pastor, from a Christian. There could be any number of, of, of people or, or groups that have brought about rejection. Every time it stings, it hurts. And every time we feel that, you know what we say? Not again. Not again. And that fear keeps us from wanting to be intimate, keeps us from wanting to give ourselves completely to a relationship. I'm afraid. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy for fear? It's love. You say love. Yeah, it's love. It's understanding what real love is all about. It's being open to experiencing real love. In the book of 1 John, it's toward the end of the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes, Love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it shows that his love, God's love, has not been perfected in us. He's saying, listen, if you want to understand real love, then you have to first start with the love that Christ showed in giving his life for you. 
that once you have a relationship with Christ, once, he, once you experience his grace, his mercy, and his perfected love in your life, man, it just opens the door to you being able to love people in a different kind of way. When you understand the unconditional love of God, then you begin to open yourself up to loving people. Maybe you never get all the way to unconditionally, but you get a lot further along. And he says, if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, if you're having trouble going there, maybe it's because you've not opened yourself up to his love. He backed up back up in, in verse 17. He said this, as we live in God, our love grows more and more perfect. So we will not be afraid. In other words, he's saying this is not a one-time thing. This is not an overnight thing. That as you continue to live your life and you continue to surrender your life to God, and as you grow in that relationship, you grow in understanding his love. And it's a journey over a period of time. And the more that you understand that love, the more you experience his love, the more you're open to loving other people and the less fear you feel in relationships. You see, when I understand that God loves me unconditionally and that God is for me and that God has provided everything that I need in life, then I'm not as fearful of you rejecting me. It's still going to sting, but I'm not as fearful of it because I understand who I am. When I understand all the, the, the needs that I have met in Christ, that when I gave my life to him, he completes me. That I don't have a bunch of needs that, that, that I have to place on the shoulders of someone else. That, that I can find those. I can, find, I can be sustained in my love for Christ and his love for me. When I know that, then I put less expectation on you to meet those needs. And I can give more of myself to you. When I understand the fact that I've turned my back on God, and he's never turned his back on me. When I understand the fact that I've not wanted to pursue after God, I've not wanted to be everything that I could be, and yet God continues to love me. When I understand that kind of love, and then I look at the people in my life, and I see them reject me, or I see them not want to love me in return, and I want to go, well, if you're not going to love me, then I'm going to go. And I see God standing there going, you going to go where? I'm going to go back over here and love you some more, you know. It's just, I know it's not as easy as I just made it sound. But there is a supernatural kind of love that God is able to perfect in you. To give you the ability to love when you don't really want to love. And maybe that's what you need today to help you overcome fear that you feel in a relationship. The third, third killer, the third thing in our life is anger. Anger. Listen, we all make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I don't bat a thousand. I make a lot of mistakes. I don't meet my own standards, much less the standards that God has for my life. And so there are times I know that I hurt people because I'm dumb at times, all right? And I make mistakes. And hopefully more times than not, it's unintentional than it is intentional. But I'm not going to say that there are not times that I haven't done things intentionally. And possibly you have too. And possibly you've been on the receiving end of those things. What do you do with that? What do you do with that hurt? What do you do with that pain of someone hurting you? Intentionally or unintentionally? Do you become bitter? Do you hang on to it? 
do you let it begin to just turn into this thing of resentment and anger? What do you do? What do you do with it? Because see, that anger, man, it can, become, it can become this thing that just ruins every relationship in your life. And it starts out somewhat innocently. You know, in your, in your marriage, you know the saying, opposites attract and then they're married and then opposites attack, right? Because you were attracted to something that was opposite of you. You know, you're single and maybe you're a little more reserved and quiet and you see this person, they're loud, boisterous, they're the life of the party and you're like, oh, I'm not that person, but I'm drawn to that, you know? And then you get married and you're like, do you ever hush up? Why do you have to be loud all the time, right? You know, what once fascinates now irritates, right? I mean, it's like, and, and those things, and, and, and they can be little innocent things, but they can create this feeling of resentment they can create this feeling of anger. Like, why do you do this? Why can't you be different? And sometimes we hang on to those. And sometimes we're hanging on to them, and we've never let anybody know we're hanging on to them. And they're fueling this thing inside of us. And you know what? When we're angry, we have a tendency to not think the way we need to think. We have a tendency to do things that are really dumb. We have a tendency to lose control. And there's been so many studies that have been done that says that once you reach a point of anger, that you stop thinking logically. You stop processing logically. That's why you do some really, really dumb things. In fact, some people in here might would say, some of the biggest mistakes or regrets that I've made in my life were done in a moment of anger. In a moment that I needed to take revenge. It's because we stop thinking and we let that anger just fuel us. Here's what it says in the book of Psalms, chapter 73. It says, when my heart was sad and I was angry, I was senseless and stupid. I acted like a brute beast toward you. There's some of you, that, that can be your life verse, right? You write that down and put that, put that on my mirror, you know? You know, it's your life verse, right? That's the way it is with you. You just allow things to... to things were done and you got hurt and you became so angry and you were like a brute beast man you just went in and just started destroying and it doesn't have to be physically it can be with your words anger angry maybe because someone has hurt you what do you do with that so what's the remedy to anger forgiveness see some of you are like yeah I knew you were going to get that forgiveness thing forgiveness I'm not saying that forgiveness is, is easy. In fact, the more difficult the hurt, the, more, you know, the, the stronger the hurt, the more difficult it is to forgive. I get it. But if we don't forgive, it just fuels this thing in us that will absolutely destroy us. Here's what the book of Colossians says. It's the Apostle Paul. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one, other, one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other and forgive. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So when you think about all the things that God has forgiven you for, when you think about if you're a Christ follower, when you think about the fact that we were on the hook for eternity, that our sins, according to the scripture, was going to send us to a place where eternal separation from God and God did the unthinkable by sending his son to die for you. 
and you received Jesus as your Savior and you are grateful and you still are today, thank you that my eternity is now set and secure in heaven someday when I die. It was a big hook for eternity and you have all these little hooks in the water on all these people because of the things that they've done to you. And you're like, God, thank you for letting me off that big hook. I can't let you off that hook, can't let you off that hook, can't let you off that hook, can't let you off that hook. Forgive as the Lord's forgiven you. You know that Lord's Prayer that we pray? You know, you, you hear it like in sport events and, you know, our Father, our Father, and most of the time you can't understand what they're saying. Our Father, our Father, you know, it's the Lord's Prayer. And you get to that place, you're like, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Have you ever thought about that? Is that really what you're praying? God, I'm asking you to forgive me in the same manner that I forgive everybody in my life. We really want God to do that? That might get a little sticky in some situations. But again, God is saying, if you want to have a right relationship with me, it starts with having a right relationship with the people in your life, and maybe that starts with forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, I'm, that they didn't really hurt me, that they didn't really hurt you. That you're, forgiveness doesn't mean you're justifying what they did. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you trust them not to do it again. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. Forgiveness is for you, primarily, because you need forgiveness at some point in your life. You may actually need forgiveness from the person that you're not willing to forgive right now. You definitely need forgiveness from God. But forgiveness, you might have heard it, forgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. Because it's killing you on the inside. Forgiveness, here's the way to think about it. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and the right to get even. Letting go of the pain and the right you feel to get even. That's what forgiveness is. I'm not going to let this anger, this resentment continue to move me in a direction I want to try to get even with this person. I'm going to let go of that pain and this right. Ephesians says this. Ephesians chapter 4, if you're angry... Don't sin by nursing your grudge. Don't let the sun go down with you still angry. Get over it quickly, for when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. He's saying, don't, don't, don't nurse this thing. Don't let the sun go down. And you say, does he literally mean that I, every night before I go to bed, I have to make sure that I forgive him? It's not so much that as much as don't continue to carry the anger that you feel and the unforgiveness you feel from one season to the next to the next of your life. Some of you got hurt in high school and you're still carrying that pain today. Some of you got hurt in your 20s and you're still carrying it well into your 40s and 50s. And you know what? You don't even see that person anymore. They don't ever see you anymore. They're probably never even thinking about you anymore. And you may not be consciously thinking about them, but you're carrying hurt and anger and resentment from whatever happened. And the people in your life today are the ones catching the shrapnel. Because it just keeps coming out and coming out. And somewhere you've got to say, I'm going to let go of that pain. And I'm going to let go of that right to get even. I'm going to let them off the hook. And I'm going to forgive. If we don't, we're going to nurse this anger. And it is going to literally destroy us and any relationship that we have. Maybe your relationship today 
looks more like this. And you're like, how do we ever, how do we ever do anything with this? How do we ever get back to where we were? Is there any possible way? Or is that just a dream as well? Well, I think there's hope and I think there's power in what God has to offer. In the book of Hebrews, God basically says this in chapter 13, verse 5. He says, I will never leave you. And he says, I will never forsake you. And that literally means I will never turn my heart away from you. There'll never be a day when you've messed up so much. He's like, you know what? I'm done. I've forgiven you so much. I'm done. Just go do your deal. There's never going to be a time. There's never going to be a time when when we look and God's not pursuing us, that God's heart is not turned toward us, that God is not in love with us. There's never going to be a day when that happens. And while I think, number one, that should be a place of gratitude for us, thank you, God, that you're always pursuing us, that your heart is always turned toward us. I think, secondly, it needs to be a challenge in our relationships. If God, if my heart, if your heart is never turned away from me, then I never, turn, I never need to turn my heart away from the people in my life, my relationships, and my spouse. That somewhere I've got to find the courage to turn my heart back toward this person. And I'm not saying that that makes everything go away. And I'm not saying that you feel like you love that person. But if you wait to feel that way, then you're going to stay turned away and it will possibly lead to separation and divorce. I'm saying you act a certain way until you feel a certain way. That you continue to turn your heart back toward that person and say, I'm there for you. I'm going to be there for you. I don't feel like being there for you. I'm hurt. I want some needs met in my life. But I'm going to keep turning my heart back to you. I'm going to keep turning my heart back to you. And I believe that God has a, and it's supernatural, but he has a way of eventually turning both of your hearts back toward each other. And there may be a lot of things to cover between now and then. But it starts with you saying, God, would you give me the strength to do that? That's all I would ask you to do today. Just say, God, would you give me the strength to do that? To turn my heart back. I'm not even asking you to give the strength to forgive and do all that. I'm just saying, God, would you give me the strength to turn my heart back? And see what God does in your relationship over the next days and weeks. Because I think there's hope. Let me pray for us.